This morning, Matthew chapter 13, and we'll look at verses 31 through 35. Let's pray before we open the Word together this morning. Father, truly we have already had evidence of Your work among us this morning. And so we come before You with even bolstered faith, strengthened faith, and we ask that You would continue to work among us this morning. We pray that as You promised, that Your Word would go forth and that it would truly be sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that it would search our hearts, that it would search our minds and our souls. But for that to occur, You must be active. You must be stirring by Your Spirit in this room and in our hearts and attending to this Word. And so we call down Your work among us. We plead with You as Your children. Feed us as You fed the Israelites with manna from above. Feed us this morning. In Christ's name, Amen. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. This is the holy, inerrant word of God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now you may have noticed or knew already that you get to Matthew chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 13 is filled with all kinds of parables that Christ is telling and almost every single parable that he is telling has one object to it. It has one thing that it is trying to communicate. You notice that each of these parables he's instructing about the kingdom of heaven. It goes by different names in the Scriptures. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. I take those as being synonymous. And last week we saw that his kingdom is not absent but present. His kingdom is not forceful, but quietly effective. And we saw that His kingdom is not consummated yet, but it shall be. And this week, Christ illustrates that His kingdom has small beginnings, but it grows. And second, that God employs seemingly small and weak things to accomplish His kingdom purposes. And then finally, Though it seems weak, the kingdom, it mightily impacts the world it is in. So I want to look at those three things this morning. Christ illustrates that His kingdom has small beginnings but grows. 
That God employs seemingly small and weak things to accomplish His kingdom purposes. And then lastly, that though His kingdom seems weak, it mightily impacts the world it is in. So let's take a look this morning. Jesus uses one of His favorite illustrations. He runs to the mustard seed. He uses the mustard seed as an illustration multiple times. He will say later in Matthew 17, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, He will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. In Luke 17, He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. It's pretty easy to understand. It's easy to understand why Jesus would run to the mustard seed. The mustard seed is very small. It's a very small thing indeed. And Jesus takes this little small thing that seems very inconsequential and He's going to compare it to what the kingdom is and what the kingdom shall be. The kingdom has small beginnings, but it grows exponentially. I think at that time, the mustard seed in Israel would have been the smallest known seed among people there. And yet, when that seed recognized as small by all, when it had been planted in the ground and in fertile soil, and when it had been watered, and when you had given it some time, it could grow. And it could grow into a bush. And even more than a bush, it could grow anywhere from 6 to 12 feet wide and high. It could be like a tree. A tree that Jesus says that a bird could even make a nest in. And could even find shade in the, the shadows of, of its branches. But it would take time. And though the Christian faith would have small beginnings, Jesus is telling us that it would grow, and it would spread, and it would fill the earth. He's contrasting. That little, small, little seed grows into a mature tree. A little small beginning of the kingdom of God grows into a thing that that fills the entire earth. But you have to be patient. One must be patient when planting a seed. Confess to having a, a real love for this parable. I have a I feel like a eternal bond with mustard seeds. Uh, when I was a child, uh, my steady diet consisted of mustard. Uh, that is not an overstatement. Uh, between the ages of 5 and 15, uh, for every lunch almost in my entire childhood, and for most dinners, I ate a mustard sandwich. Now let me explain to you the intricacies of a mustard sandwich. You take a piece of white bread and you lay it down and you take yellow mustard and you squirt that yellow mustard on the piece of white bread and you spread it. And then you gently take another piece of white bread and you put it on top of that smeared mustard bread. It's a delicacy. (laughs) And you eat it. You say, what was wrong with your mother? Nothing. Uh, My mother tried her utmost. It was my problem. Why? 
Well, there was a fateful day when I was on my bus headed to kindergarten as a five-year-old. And I was seated next, behind actually my bus driver, who I consider one of my best friends in the world, and he gave me shocking news that changed my life. He said, hamburgers are made out of cows. I was done. I proclaimed with a loud voice, I shall never eat meat again. And I was a stubborn five-year-old, and no matter what my mom tried, I had a gag reflex anytime meat was put before me or on the table. And I lived from five to 15 as a vegetarian, and most of my meals consisted of mustard sandwiches. Poor mom, she tried everything. It wouldn't work. And she didn't know that that day when she put me on the bus, I was a kid that was headed off to kindergarten to learn his ABCs and to learn how to color within lines. And then that rude bus driver told me hamburgers were made out of cows and that my entire life would be changed. Just a very small conversation and yet had a huge impact on me for 10 years. I love meat now. We just can't talk about it. I love it. You can't talk about it when we're sitting at the table, but I love it. A small thing can become the greatest of things. You think about this context of this teaching, the disciples have no doubt about the kingdom's greatness. They have no doubt what it shall become. They... There's no concern about that. Every Jew knew the kingdom would be great. That's not the issue. What they could be confused about and were confused about, it seems, was a small beginnings. That a small thing could be a thing that dominates everything. They wanted to see it ushered in and immediately dominating. They thought it would come in like a lion or like a hurricane and shake everything up, but it doesn't. Jesus had said over and over the kingdom is at hand, but they weren't seeing what they expected of the kingdom. And one can imagine the discouragement that was beginning to grip them. Because wrong expectations shipwreck many faith journeys. And weren't the rocks of hardship supposed to be cleared? Weren't the storms of affliction to cease when the kingdom comes? And faith wrecks upon these rocks of wrong expectations. And Jesus knows. He knows their inward struggle. He's not deaf. He's not dumb to it. In fact, in Luke 19, Luke tells us that as Jesus was headed into Jerusalem, that he began to tell a parable, and Luke says this is the reason. He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, was the kingdom of God present? Yes. That's why Jesus is entering Jerusalem. But they expected it to come in all of its power immediately. And so he tells them a parable. So that they might know it's not, the problem that, it's not the problem that they have some grand expectations of the kingdom. It's that they, they have grand expectations immediately. Isn't that often where our discouragement in the Christian life comes? 
we know, know that God will work. I, I know that He will give peace. I know that He will sustain. But I'm not sensing it now. I don't have that, that peace now. I don't feel that assurance now. That He's working for me now. The struggle is that it just doesn't happen immediately. And it can shake our faith. The disciples are being sent out into the world. They're being sent out to declare that the kingdom has come and they are to do it with full-throated voices and Jesus doesn't want them going out discouraged because they don't see what they expected to see yet. He always works. He always works from small things at the start. You think about these disciples. We think of them today and we think, well, these were great men of faith. They they were the cream of the crop. You think of Peter and you think about John and you think about Thomas and these men that go out and yet they were a band of very insignificant men. Very small. Of all the people on the earth who could proclaim the truth of Christ and spread His kingdom throughout the world, you would not have chosen these. Not these men. They have no connections. They have no earthly power. They have no wealth to speak of. No army supporting them. And you wouldn't have chosen the means that Jesus uses in sending them out. How are they to go out and extend this kingdom just by preaching? By preaching and teaching and evangelizing with words. To spread that. From person to person. Just very small beginnings. But it grows. It grows to fill the earth. Who would have believed in those early decades of the church if told that the Christian faith would reach further than Alexander the Great ever conquered? That Caesar had ever dreamed of? that Confucius had ever hoped his teachings would reach, that Muhammad ever tried to acquire. And the Christian faith spreads much further. Within 300 years of Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father, historians believe that there were probably 8 million Christians in the ancient world. And it didn't stop there. The Christian faith is found throughout the world today, and it's still spreading. It is absolutely ludicrous ramblings of the ignorant that say that Christianity is a Western religion, that it's a Western faith, that it is something that was born in the West and bred in the West and continues in the West. You, you can call it Western, but you also have to call it Eastern and Southern and Northern and everything in between because it is everywhere and it's only spreading more. 
Christianity is African and South American and North American and European and Asian and Australian. It's a faith that is practiced by Japanese and Chinese and Samoans and Laotians and Brazilians and Mexicans and Spaniards and Germans. Often repeated sentiment that Christianity is a Western religion is sillier than saying that mustard sandwiches are nutritious. It's just ignorant. It wasn't true at the beginning, nor has it been true in the course of history, nor is it true in the present. Christianity began in the Middle East, my friends. And then it spread up to Asia Minor, what we call modern day Turkey, and it spread across North Africa. The seat of the early church was not in cities like London and Paris or even Rome. No, it was in Antioch and it was in Constantinople. The early church fathers were Africans and Asians like Origen and Cyril of Alexandria and Athanasius and Augustine and the Cappadocian fathers among others. The early church councils reveal the same non-Western ethos of center of Christianity, of early Christianity. Nicaea and Chalcedon and Ephesus and Constantinople are far from Western metropolises. They're Eastern. Christian faith spread across Europe, but it also spread to Iran and India by the end of the second century. Armenia and Georgia will make it their state religions by the end of the fourth century. The faith reached as far as China as early as the middle of the first century and as late as the beginning of the seventh century. Christianity began small, but then it grows exponentially spreads through the entire world. Within a couple of centuries, it was an international faith. This is a kingdom of the world because it is a faith for the world. It's no mistake that on that day when the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon the church at Pentecost and the church is being sent out, that there you have people from all kinds of people groups speaking all kinds of languages from all kinds of ethnicities that that Spirit falls upon and they're all speaking different languages. Because it's a faith for the world. Smart starts small. It grows and grows and grows. And it fills the whole earth. Second, God's kingdom employs the seemingly small and seemingly weak things of the world to accomplish its purposes. That little mustard seed is meant to underscore this about our faith. That a seed grows into a tree. This little tiny thing that seems so inconsequential. And yet that's what God uses to form a great mustard tree. It seems so weak in the hand. You see this throughout redemptive history that this is God's way. It was not Egypt. It was not Babylon that God chose as His people, but Israel. It was not Pharaoh that God chose. It was Moses. It was not the stronger, older brothers of David. It was that little, ruddy shepherd boy that God chose. And as we come to this Christmas season, you should see it clearly 
We see it throughout the Gospel account. You have this One who is born, the very Son of God, come into this world incarnate in flesh. He's not born in a palace in a king-sized bed in Jerusalem, the city of kings. No. He's born in a barn, in a manger, in this little forgotten city of Bethlehem. His parents were not royalty, but unknown commoners. He's brought up as a carpenter's son. He chooses disciples who are fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, not an elite among them. He enters Jerusalem on a donkey. He secures salvation by a cross. Who would dream of starting a faith by an accused, convicted martyr? He appoints women as the first witnesses and heralds of His resurrection when no one would receive at that time the testimony of a woman. And He sends His disciples to the ends of the earth with mere words and a testimony and an invisible spirit as their companion. Small beginnings. Seemingly weak means. And yet that's what He uses. Why? He's God. Couldn't He have come with a little more in His back pocket? A little more guns blazing. Show Him your power. Why? Why does He choose to work His kingdom purposes through weak and frail and seemingly insignificant things? Because it magnifies the one who works through them. If a man told me he was going to move this automobile and then he gets a crane out, a large crane, and he moves that automobile by the crane, I'm not so impressed with the man as I am with the crane. But if that same man looks at the automobile and he says, I have these tweezers and I'm going to move that automobile with these tweezers. And he does. Now I'm impressed with the man. If it was any other way, it would divert glory from Christ. Nothing has started smaller than the kingdom of Christ and grown larger. And it proclaims to the praise of His glory. And nothing has employed seemingly smaller and weaker things than the kingdom of Christ and triumphed as it has, and it proclaims to the praise of His glory. If kings, or if emperors, or generals were the first disciples, we would be told that earthly powers forced the faith upon others. If it began with the wealthy, or continued with the wealthy, we would be told that people were bought off. If it had been accepted by the Roman or the Greek or the Jewish culture of the time, instead of being persecuted as it was, we would be told that culture dictated it and it was socially acceptable and that's why people conformed to it. But you can't argue any of those things. It was a faith. A faith born of lay people. Embraced by the commoner, spread by the ordinary, and it remains that way by far and away today. 
Ours is a faith that's seldom celebrated by the worldly famous or the worldly rich or the worldly powerful. It has been mocked throughout the centuries in various generations as unthinking and incompatible with life in this world, a crutch, a fanciful fairy tale, and yet it continues to outlast and supersede every single enemy that has been brought against it. And it does it through the weakest of means. I think the cult of the emperor could not stamp it out. Arianism could not derail it. Manichaeism could not out-argue it. Darwinism could not curb it. Communism could not destroy it. Materialism will not outflank it. Islam will not crush it. Secular humanism will not supersede it. If we were to list all the powers that have been brought against Christendom over the centuries, we would see that all of them lay as rubble before its feet, or they will. And it seems so weak. And it gives him so much glory. I was thinking about this this morning and thinking how the Lord uses seemingly weak things and just thinking about some of the great testimonies. You take these giants of our faith and so many of them came to saving faith through just the weakest of things. John Wesley, he's on a ship going from England to America, and he opens up a commentary on the book of Galatians by Martin Luther. He's not reading the commentary. Say, oh, he's going through all these passages and all this high thinking of Martin Luther as he's going through Galatians 1 and Galatians 2. No, that's not what happens. He reads the preface and is converted. Augustine, the maybe greatest theological mind in the history of the church, he is wrestling with all the ins and outs of the Christian faith and he's opposed to it in every way and he's living this life that is lascivious and is a scoundrel of a man. And he's sitting on a bench and he hears a little girl or a little boy, he doesn't even know which one it was, playing in the yard next door and singing a little song and just saying over and over, tole lege, tole lege, tole lege. Take up and read, take up and read. So he opens the Bible and he reads and it's converted. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he is reformed by reading a clause in Romans 1. Just a clause. And he is struck with the grace of God. A clause. Charles Spurgeon, the, the great preacher, he's on his way as a 15-year-old to a church that he would always go to, but the snow was so high that he couldn't make it there. And so he decided to turn off to this primitive Methodist church that was around the corner. And so he walks through the snow, he walks in and he said there are maybe 15 people in the room. And the preacher obviously couldn't even make it. And so a layman gets up, opens up the text to Isaiah where it says, look unto me and be saved. And he said the preacher, he was a simple man, a carpenter maybe, maybe a, a tradesman of some kind is what Spurgeon said. And he said he waxed eloquent as much as he could for 15 minutes on look to me. And he ran out of stuff to say. He said he got to the point where he said, look at me. 
I'm sweating drops of blood. Look unto me. I was crucified on a cross. Look unto me. I was buried in the grave. Look unto me. I was resurrected from the grave. Look unto me. I, was, I ascended to the right hand of the Father and sit there now and reign. And he said, and then the man ran out of material. And he said, he just kind of looked around and he's looking at the 15 people and then he looked at me. Spurgeon said, as a 15-year-old, and he said, son, you look very disturbed. Have you looked unto Christ? And in that moment, Spurgeon is converted. Not a profound sermon. Not waxing eloquent. Not the most educated of men. God uses the weak things of the world to accomplish His purposes. You say, I feel very weak. Well, you're in good company. See, my faith feels very small. You're in good company. And He chooses to use you. The second parable is similar and provides our final point quickly. The kingdom seems weak itself, but mightily impacts the world it's in. In this parable, Jesus uses leaven. A woman takes leaven, a portion of last week's dough, and she puts it in this big Mix of flour. This is no small batch of flour. Probably 50 pounds of flour. And she puts that leaven in there and it touches all of that leaven and it transforms it. Now, leaven is often used by Jesus. He speaks of leaven multiple times as well. And he's often used by Jesus to speak of evil in the world and the way that evil makes its way throughout the world. And so I think it's pretty clear he's trying to encourage us here. He uses leaven as he speaks about the kingdom here. And he gets purposeful because evil spreads through the world. And we may think immediately when we hear that word, that leaven from Jesus' mouth, we're thinking about evil spreading through the world as we saw last week about the weeds that are being sown throughout the world and they're growing up. And so we have evil in all places. And so Jesus here speaks about another leavening agent that is going throughout the world. Jesus is telling us it's often hidden, it's often undetectable, it's seemingly small. But Christ's kingdom is working by His Word through His people throughout the world. Jesus is subtly reminding us that He is greater than He that is in the world. That grace is greater than sin. That Christ is all-powerful and Satan is not. That Christianity does not have a yin and yang philosophy. There is not an equal evil to good. No, Christ's kingdom always triumphs. It will dominate this earth. And you can see it. You can see the impact even before the consummation of all things. Whereas the first parable emphasizes the extent of the kingdom, this parable emphasizes its intensity. The kingdom is pervasive. And it transforms that which it comes into contact with. As God's Word goes into the world through His people, it affects the world around it. How? How does it do this? Well, let's, let's try and understand God's way of working in this world and how Christ has chosen to work. 
He established the visible church. We've talked about that already this morning as we accepted new members. This is the visible church, what you can see. The visible church, the members of the church that have united themselves to Christ and to one another. That Christ rules over. And He rules over through His ordained leadership in the church. This institution, the church, the visible church, it has a very narrow mission. Very narrow. It is one thing to make disciples. That's why we exist as a local church. To make disciples. Now there are many good things that we could do as a church. But we don't want to do all those good things. We want to do the main thing. The necessary thing. Make disciples. That's what He put us here for. To make disciples. As URC, talk about we connect and equip. We're connecting people to Christ and to the church body, and then we're equipping you. Or as URC has said for a long time, we bring them in, we build them up, and we send them out. We're making disciples. We're equipping you. We're seeking and saving the lost, bringing them by God's grace to saving faith in Christ. Then we're equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, as Paul says in Ephesians. And then we're sending those saints out. The mission of the church is very narrow. Make disciples. But the disciples' mission is very broad. The disciples are to go out into the world and be sold and light in the world. The kingdom mission through the disciples is very broad. That as we go out into the world, everything that we bump up against, we're influencing it. We're encouraging it in the right direction. We're laboring for different kingdom things in the world as disciples in the world. We want to see His peace come to bear. We want to see His justice come to bear. We want to see His truth come to bear. We want to see people love one another and treat one another with love. We are aimed at those things as disciples in the world. It's a very broad mission that we have in the world. This is when the church is at its best. Plucking from the world and making disciples who then go out to impact the world that they were plucked from. And we've seen this throughout human history. It's an interesting fact that so many of the opponents of Christianity today that hurl insults at the Christian faith today for whatever the issue of the day is, racism, sexism, intolerance, illiteracy, child abuse, the needs of the poor, the environment, all right concerns in the right place. But they became concerns. They became part of the national consciousness because of Christianity. The platforms people stand upon as they hurl insults at the Christian faith have their substructure in Christianity. It was Christianity and the influence of Christians in the world that led to women's rights. It was the Christian faith asserting the equality of man and woman, both created in the image of God, of equal worth and of equal dignity, that led to equal treatment under the law, the right to vote, concern about physical abuse. 
We could take any of these issues, illiteracy, education, the, the university, higher education, a high literacy rate, or the byproducts of Christianity. Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Brown University, William and Mary, Dartmouth, Columbia, all founded by the church, supported by the church, financed by the church. To train clergy, and to train people to grow in their minds, to push back those noetic effects of the fall where the fall has affected our minds and encourage right thinking according to godliness. Concern for the education of children came from people that were concerned that everyone be able to read so they could read God's Word. The value of children. It was first century Christians that are saving these children from being put outside at night and frozen to death because it was too much to take care of them or they weren't a boy. It was Christians that were saving these children. Show the value of children. It was Christians who proposed child labor laws saying you can't work a child like life. The abolition of slavery, the civil rights movement, concerns for the poor, the mentally ill, the day laborer getting at least a Sabbath day off. And we could go on and on. They were all the result of Christian influence and the kingdom's effect upon the culture around it. The kingdom of heaven leavens all around it. It influences, it shapes, it impacts. It's not only extensive, but it's intensive. And he decided to use you towards those ends. The church equips. The church exists to make disciples, and now you go out making disciples and serving as leaven in this world. But I'm small and weak. Faith is small. My faith isn't like David. My faith isn't like Moses. My faith isn't like Mary. But you know what? David's faith wasn't David's faith at the beginning either. Moses' faith wasn't Moses' faith at the beginning either. Or Mary's faith, Mary's faith at the beginning either. You see, this is one of the great kingdom principles, isn't it? That just as the kingdom starts small and it grows and grows and grows and fills the earth, so the kingdom in our hearts starts small. And by God's grace and according to His kindness, it expands and it grows and it grows and it grows to where it begins to dominate our hearts and dominate our lives. Could my efforts attain? Because I'm not there. Well, he chooses to use weak and frail things. You don't know. Just a word here or there. Labor here or there. The person that's sitting next to you in this sanctuary this morning, you don't know what courage it may have taken for them to walk through those doors this morning and sit here. And yet one kind word from you. Just one inquiry, one small prayer prayed with them can have incredible kingdom impact. Just helping the 
person that walks through the door that is a visitor, that is an international student, that knows no friends here in the Lansing area, just move here and you befriend them, invite them over for lunch and you introduce them to somebody else. You never know. But small things like that do for the kingdom. Just a word, just a prayer prayed, just a thing advocated for, just an encouragement. He uses seemingly weak, inconsequential small things because it displays His glory. So pray that you would see yourself as a citizen of the kingdom. That you would pray and speak and labor for that kingdom in this world. That you would seek to make disciples and you would seek to bring Christian truth to bear where you can. We might be, as it were, a city set upon a hill here in East Lansing, impacting more than we could possibly imagine or dream because we have a great God who works in such ways. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful. You are God who sits sovereign enthroned above, that there is no enemy that this world can bring against the kingdom of your Son. I shall stand against it. The gates of hell cannot even prevail against the church. So would you give us confidence? Would you give us prayerfulness? Would you give us conviction to walk in faith? To be, as it were, disciples in the church, growing in maturity, and as it were, good kingdom citizens, bringing to bear your truth in every sphere that we dwell in in this culture. At this city, East Lansing, and we would even pray in faith that the world would miss University Reformed Church if it did not exist tomorrow because of the impact we have upon those around us. May we seek Your glory in all of this. We pray that Thy kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.